back in 1966, the city of Florence, Italy, uh, experienced its worst flood in 400 years. About 100 people died. Most of the city was underwater. Thousands of works of art were destroyed or seriously damaged. Uh, one of those works of art was a huge painting by an artist named Giorgio Vasari. Vasari had been a friend of Michelangelo, and he painted this ginormous eight-foot by 21-foot uh, mural, almost, of the Last Supper, Jesus' Last Supper. And in 1546, when it had been painted, it was displayed in a Florence church that was now underwater, 1966 at the flood. In fact, it spent two days under 20 feet of water until rescuers pulled it out. And they spread it out to dry, but nobody wanted to touch it because they were afraid it would crumble in their hands. And it stayed in that condition for over 40 years until in 2009, uh, new restoration techniques, scientific techniques, had been invented, and so a team of 13 restorers went to work on it and worked on it for the next seven years. Until finally this last November, November 2016, Vasari's The Last Supper was displayed for the first time in half a century in all its glory. Now today, this Easter weekend, I want to talk to you about restoration. I don't want to talk to you about the restoration of paintings, though. I want to talk to you about the restoration of people. I want to talk to you about the restoration of you and me. The Bible tells us that we're God's masterpieces. Very first chapter, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, says that we're, we're made in the very image of God. The, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 14, he says, I praise you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So we are God's masterpieces. Now, unfortunately, the Bible goes on to say that these, these masterpieces have been terribly marred, not by floodwaters, but by sin. Every one of us has defaced the image of God in our lives by countless bad behaviors and hurtful words, selfish attitudes, misplaced priorities, defective values. Romans 3 verse 23 sums it up this way. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is that God is in the business of restoration. God wants to restore you and me as his masterpieces. And so th this Easter weekend, we're launching a four-part series, a four-weekend series at Christ Community called Restoration, Out with the Old, In with the New. So let me ask you as we begin this series, what are some of the gnarly old habits and character traits that God might want to remove from your life? And what are some of the new habits and character traits that God might want to develop? If you have a hard time answering that question, you might want to turn to the person next to you, if you came with them, and just say, what are the gnarly things that need to go in my life? You know, have you ever thought about the changes that, that you yourself would like to see take shape in your life? C.S. Lewis, famous author of the children's series Chronicles of Narnia, as well as dozens of other, other books, he came to faith in Christ late in life. He had been a professed atheist for years, and he wrote about the restoration that God is up to in our lives. Listen, listen to what Lewis says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. 
At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. I mean, you, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, what, what on earth has God up to? The explanation, Lewis says, is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. I mean, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Wow. God wants to restore our lives to make us better people than we ever imagined. Now, friends, that restoration doesn't come easy. I mean, to, to pull it off is going to take power. And so today, this Easter weekend, we're going to talk about resurrection power, the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power we're going to need if we want to see positive changes take shape in our lives. So let's, let's begin today with the problem. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, you might want to do that. Fill it in as we go. Point number one is the problem. What is the problem? While I'm talking about the problem, you might want to turn to Romans chapter 7. If you brought a Bible, we're going to look at several key passages today, Romans 7 in your New Testament. While you're looking for Romans 7, let me illustrate the problem in my own life, okay? So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sue and I, on my day off, we jumped on the train into the city, and we spent the afternoon at the Art Institute. So we looked at all these beautiful paintings, and then we stepped out onto Michigan Avenue, and we started to walk north. We figured we would extend our date by going out to dinner. I had a couple of different restaurants in mind. But there was one restaurant in particular, as we're walking north, I'm thinking to myself, I should probably not go there. Okay, this restaurant, have you ever been to Grand Lux? Okay, on North Michigan Avenue, it's got like a 28-page menu. It's got amazing cheesecake for dessert. I mean, the, the Godiva chocolate cheesecake is like to die for. There is this, you know, syrup, chocolate syrup drizzled over it, mounds of whipped cream piled on top of it. And, you know, I'm trying to cut back on sweets and shed a few pounds, and I'm thinking, I should probably not go to Grand Lux. I should probably not go to Grand Lux. And my feet took me to Grand Lux. And so I'm, I'm eating dinner. Sue and I order, and we're eating dinner. And I'm thinking to myself, the whole while I'm eating, I should probably not order dessert. I should probably not order dessert. And when the waiter came by and said, can I show you a dessert menu? I said, no, I'll just have the Godiva chocolate cheesecake. Thank you. And so I'm eating the chocolate cheesecake, and I'm thinking to myself, I should probably not eat the whole thing. I should probably ask for a box. And I devoured the whole thing. So what is my problem? Okay, wh why can't I say no to sweets? My problem is powerlessness. My problem is po powerlessness. And that's your problem too. You're laughing at me or with me, right? <laughs> but you've got the same problem. And maybe it's not with sweets. Maybe you could say no to sweets. But what can't you say no to? Some of you can't say no to alcohol. Some of you can't say no to a critical spirit. You're even critical of people who overdo on cheesecake. Some of you can't say no to compulsive spending. Some of you can't say no to TV or gossip or gambling 
or Instagramming or pornography or too busy a schedule. You just, you can't say no. Our problem is powerlessness. Remember the slogan from that anti-drug ad a number of years ago, just say no. I used to think, that's a stupid slogan. Because our problem is we can't say no. We lack the power to just say no. Now, in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is writing this New Testament epistle. And he describes the problem he has with powerlessness. Just amazing that he struggles with the same thing you and I struggle with. So pick it up at verse 15 of Romans 7. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Okay, drop down a few verses, middle of verse 18, he continues, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I thank him that in his holy word he shows me real people who struggle with stuff that I struggle with. I can remember the first time I read the passage I just read to you. I was absolutely shocked that this was in the Bible. You know, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that the great Apostle Paul would admit to having this, this problem that I struggle with. There were things in Paul's life he says that he wanted to say no to, but he found himself doing them anyway. The, the problem of powerlessness. In fact, Paul says he struggles with the flip side of that problem as well. There are things in his life he wanted to say yes to, but he couldn't make himself do them. Can you identify with that part of the problem? I mean, there are things you want to say yes. You're a parent and you want to say yes to helping your, your, your kids on a given evening with their homework. But you can't make yourself turn off the Blackhawks game and go help them with the homework, right? There are things you want to say yes. You'd like to say yes to writing out a big check to some worthy cause. You'd like to say yes to visiting a neighbor you heard is in the hospital after surgery. You'd like to say yes to befriending the kid at school who in the cafeteria everybody else ignores. You'd like to say yes to going the extra mile with the cranky customer that everybody else avoids. You'd like to say yes, but you can't make yourself do it. It's the problem of powerlessness. I don't know if you're familiar with the 12-step recovery program of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. In preparation for this restoration series, I've been doing a lot of reading about addictions and about how to counsel people who want to break bad patterns in their lives. Well, do you know what the very first step is in AA's 12-step program? You probably heard it before. Listen to me as I read it. Step number one, we admit we are powerless... We admit we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Listen, friends, if we want to be restored as God's masterpieces, if there are things in our lives we want to stop doing or we want to start doing, we must begin by recognizing the problem that we are powerless to change our behaviors and attitudes and character. I mean, back, back to Romans 7, this passage in which Paul admits that he lacks control, the power to control his life. In this same chapter, Paul mentions God's law 31 times. You say, what's, what's so significant about that? Well, think about it. Paul is telling us our problem is not that we lack the right rules to live by. 
Paul said for himself, I got God's law. said it 31 times. He'd grown up as an Orthodox Jew. Paul knew the Ten Commandments backwards and forwards. He says, that's not my problem. My problem is I can't live up to them. See, this is the problem with every religious system out there except Christianity. We can have the Ten Commandments of Judaism. We could have the five pillars of Islam. We can have the sevenfold path of Buddhism. Shoot, you can have the best self-help tips in the latest book you pick up at Barnes & Noble or you listen to on a podcast or get from your favorite blogger. Your problem is not that you don't have rules to live up to. The problem is you lack the power to live up to them, right? This is our problem. Our problem is powerlessness. Number two, let's talk about the offer. Okay, we've been in Romans 7. I want you to go to the right in your Bible until you come to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, just a couple of books over. And while you're looking for Ephesians 1, let me tell you another personal anecdote. Uh, a couple of years ago, I built a fence in my backyard. Now, actually, I didn't build it. I hired a company to come in and build it for me. And the reason I hired a company is because I had done this at my last house myself. Okay, and I still remember thinking our, our backyard in our previous house was about the size of a postage stamp. So there, there were only about eight or ten post holes to dig. And I thought, I can do this and do it the old-fashioned way, you know, the manual post hole digger. Okay, you've ever used one of those, you know what that's like. And I nearly killed myself. I mean, there was so much packed clay just beneath the surface and huge rocks. and So this time around, I thought, I'm going to be smart. I'm just going to hire guys to do the grunt work. Now, the deal is, they didn't do any grunt work. Now, the guys came with a power auger, the cheaters. (laughs) And they just fired that sucker up, and they dug post hole after post hole all in a a couple minutes' time. And I'm, I'm telling you the story because I want, want to introduce you to an amazing truth about power. When it comes to restoration in our lives, God offers us His supernatural power. God offers us His supernatural power to get the job done. This is the same power, don't miss this, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead that first Easter. Now, if you found Ephesians chapter 1, this is another New Testament epistle, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And typical of Paul's writings, you know, he would always say in the first chapter of his letters that he was praying for the people he was writing to. So we're going to drop down to verse 18, right into the middle of the prayer that Paul was praying for these folks. He says, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. i got to tell you, when the Apostle Paul gets excited about a topic, Uh, He starts repeating himself. Okay, that's kind of Paul's style, his MO. He starts piling up words that all say the same thing, but he piles them up to emphasize his point. And that's what Paul does in the verses I just read to you when he tells us about the power God offers us, power for the restoration of our lives. Look at the opening line of verse 19. 
Now, here, here's how I, Paul, I imagine Paul writing this line. Okay, as he talks about God's power for us, opening line of verse 19, he's sitting at his laptop, okay? And he says, God's got power for us who believe. And he stops and he thinks, I want to say that a bit stronger. So he puts his cursor next to the word power, and he taps in another word. He adds the word great. Yeah, it's God's great power for us who believe. Yeah, that's better. Nah, that's not quite right. He wants to say it stronger, so he moves his cursor to the left of the word great, and he types in the word incomparably. God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Now Paul's happy. But he thinks to himself, you know, maybe an illustration here would help. If I just throw out a word picture that people can imagine, give them the, the picture of the power God has available for them. And so he writes, it's like the power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. Only he doesn't say it that way. Look at the end of verse 19, beginning of verse 20. He says, the mighty strength he exerted. Three more words, mighty strength exerted. You see, you see what Paul's doing? Incomparably great power, mighty strength exerted. Raise Christ from the dead. By the way, God offers you that power. God offers you that. That's resurrection power. So, don't clap if you don't mean it. <laughs> if our problem is powerlessness, if we lack the power to make restorative changes in our lives, has God got a deal for us? God offers us his power. Now, I read to you step one in the AA 12-step recovery program a moment ago. Here's step two. We come to believe that a power greater than ourselves. Does this sound familiar, having just read Ephesians 1? That a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, friends, that's a great statement as far as it goes but it doesn't give us much information about this power greater than ourselves. A few years back, I was uh, having lunch with a friend of mine in town. He's a successful businessman, was at the time, was also a recovering alcoholic. So he was telling me over lunch about uh, AA and being in a AA group, and I said, you know, that 12-step thing, tell me what those... 12 steps are. And so he recited the first step and then he got to the second step about a power greater than ourselves. And I said, that's interesting. Where do you find that power greater than yourself? And he said, well, it doesn't really matter where you find it. You know, it's kind of whatever works for you. I said, really? And he said, yeah, he pointed, we're in this restaurant, he pointed to the door, the entrance door, and he said, see the doorknob there? See, if, if your hope is in that doorknob and it works for you, great. Now, now, please understand, disclaimer here, if you've been through AA, I don't think AA encourages anybody to put their hope in a doorknob, all right? But I just looked at my friend that day, and I said, dude, you're crazy. And I, I told him about the power that God makes available to us through Jesus Christ, and he knew this was coming because we were buds. So he just kind of rolled his eyes and listened to me and then changed the subject. And a couple of years later, he was driving his car while drunk, ran it into a tree and killed himself. Don't put your hope in a doorknob to make positive life changes. Put your hope in God. Now, friends, I, I, 
I don't believe for a second that anyone listening to my voice right now at one of our four campuses or online, that you believe in the power of a doorknob. But we all believe in the help other resources can give us to make these positive changes we'd like to see take shape in our lives. We, we believe in the help we're going to get from a supportive family or the fact that we've got a gym membership where we can go and work out or we've got great friends or a great job or we've got a can-do personality. And I want to see, say these are wonderful resources, but they don't compare to the power of God any more than a AAA battery compares to a nuclear reactor, okay? God offers you his supernatural power. This is why Paul, you know, he can't get over this. He says elsewhere, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And again, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul, Paul says, I want to get familiar with the power that raised Jesus from the dead in my life. That's God's offer, resurrection power. So now the question is, how do we tap into that power? We've looked at the problem. We've looked at the offer. Number three, here's the connection. And I want to take you to a Bible verse. This is our third passage today. That, that's probably the key verse for this entire four-week restoration series that we're launching today. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you've been following along in your Bible and you're in Ephesians, go back toward the front of your Bible, just a couple of books. You'll find 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you're turning, I want to tell you a story that Kevin DeYoung relates in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness. Now this is a book that we've been offering at Resource at our four campuses throughout our last series, but it relates to our current series as well. So we're going to keep offering it. You know, holiness, by simple definition, is God's work in our lives to make us more and more and more like his son, like Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what God wants to do in your life and my life. The Bible calls it holiness. We're calling it throughout this series restoration. How does this restoration take place? How do we fill this hole in our holiness? Well, Kevin DeYoung relates a story that explains how it happens in his book. He says he was out playing soccer in the backyard with his two young boys. He was on the side of his youngest son, his five-year-old Jacob, and uh, they were teamed up against the older son, Ian. And, and Kevin and Jacob, they had the ball, and Kevin sends Jacob down the field, uh, streaming toward the goal. He says, I'm going to pass it to you. Run, Jacob. And Jacob starts to run, and Kevin kicks the ball, only he kicks it too hard. And the ball rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls into the other goal. Score. Now, now, Eon is not too happy about this, that he's been scored against, but Jacob is ecstatic. Okay? A look of wonder appears on his five-year-old face, and he exclaims out loud, Wow, Dad, only you and Jesus can do that. And Kevin says in his book, exactly, there's a, a theological truth here. This is how we tap into God's power for personal restoration. This is where we get the power to say no to the old way of life and yes to a new way of life. It comes from connection with Jesus. Now, now look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, this key verse for our restoration series. It says, if anyone is in Christ, okay, that's a big if, if anyone is in Christ, 
Got to be in Christ. Then the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This is an amazing truth. When we surrender our lives to Christ, when we surrender our lives to Christ, we begin to live our lives in him. Paul says elsewhere, and he begins to live his life in us. And this process is what transforms us into new people who become more and more and more like Christ himself. Friends, the Bible repeats this theme again and again and again. In fact, the apostle Paul, who wrote about half of the books in our New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible, Paul uses the expression in Christ or united with Christ over 200 times to describe people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. Is that you? Okay, have you ever humbly and deliberately, very consciously surrendered your life to Jesus as the king, as the savior of your life? See, if you've genuinely made that, that decision, then your life has become united to Jesus' life. Your life has become united to Jesus' life. Uh, if this sounds at all uh, familiar because you know the 12-step program, let me take you to step three. Step three puts it this way. We make a decision to turn over our will and our lives to the care of God. We make a decision to turn over our will and our lives. That's surrender. It's what it means to surrender to Christ. Now, let me explain to you how surrendering our lives to Christ, how becoming united with Christ promotes the restoration of God's image in our lives, how it empowers us to say no to old behaviors and attitudes and priorities and values and to say yes to new stuff. Okay, United with Christ is actually a two-sided truth. Side one is I am in Christ and side two is Christ is in me. Say this with me. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Say Christ is in me. Christ is in me. Now, that's only true of you if you've surrendered your life to Christ. But, but, but let's look at side one for a moment. I am in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus has become my representative. Here's an analogy that I, I think will help you grasp this truth. When a point guard scores a three-pointer sinks the basket in the final seconds of the game and the buzzer goes off and the, the team wins, his entire team experiences the victory. Everybody on his team on the court experiences the victory. Now, they didn't shoot the shot, the point guard did, but they all experienced the victory. In fact, everybody on the bench experiences the victory if they're on his team, even though they may have played not a single minute of the game. In fact... Every fan in the stands that supports that team experiences the victory as they hoop and holler. In fact, even the couch potato sitting at home watching the game on TV who springs from his lounger and spills his popcorn all over the floor experiences the victory. He wasn't on the floor. He didn't take the shot, but he experiences the victory. The Bible says that Jesus Christ won a great victory when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And now if we surrender our lives to Jesus, if we are now in Christ, then we experience the same victory through Jesus, who's our representative. You know, the Apostle Paul says it this way. Romans 6, verse 4, 
I won't ask you to turn, but jot it down if you're taking notes. Romans 6 verse 4, we were therefore buried with him into death. See, if you're in Christ, if you surrendered to Christ, you were buried with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is incredible. Because I am in Christ, I surrender my life to Christ, I'm now in Christ, Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty for my sin. See, the penalty is death. If that sounds unusually harsh to you, it's because we don't get the fact that the, the one we defy every day of our lives is the giver of life. When we go our way instead of God's way, when we disconnect from the source of life, the repercussions are death. That's the penalty. Jesus took the death I deserve to die. I was there in Christ. But then Jesus was raised from the dead. And so in Christ, I'm now raised from the dead to a whole new way of life. Jesus sunk the three-pointer on my behalf, and I experienced the victory. You get it? Good. Good. And so on my worst day, friends... When I feel like a total loser, when I'm failing at becoming the new person I want to be, because I've surrendered to Christ and I'm in Christ, I experience the victory he won on my behalf. Rankin Wilburn has written a, just a wonderful new little book called Union with Christ. In fact, we got our whole staff at Christ Community reading it right now. Union with Christ. And in the story, in the book, he tells a story of a friend of his who used to be Mickey Mouse. Uh, that means she got a job at Disneyland in California playing Mickey Mouse, puts on the Mickey Mouse costume and does her thing. And she told Rankin on one occasion, she said, you know, in my growing up years, my teen years and so on, I had a hard time feeling accepted by other people. And so I would sometimes do misbehaviors that, that would gain me attention she said, and then one day I got this job at Disneyland playing Mickey Mouse, and I put on the Mickey Mouse costume, and I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to misbehave to get anybody's attention because people just clamored for me in excitement and joy. They mobbed me, loved me, because I was in Mickey. Rankin writes in his book, he says, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then even when you feel defeated and ensnared like you're never going to get over this particular sin or habit or, or hang up, when your heart tells you to retreat in shame, you can rehearse and remember, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. I'm experiencing the victory that Jesus Christ won for me that first Easter. And let me clarify something here. When you surrender to Christ and you become in Christ, it doesn't mean you lose your true identity. Now, now, now this, is, this is the shortcoming of the analogy I, I just used about Mickey Mouse. Because when that young woman put on the Mickey Mouse costume, for all intent and purposes, she became Mickey Mouse. But, but, but when you put on Christ, when you surrender to Christ, when you become in Christ, you don't lose your true identity. It doesn't mask your true identity. It draws it out. Remember God's purpose in your life? It's to restore the original masterpiece in all its glory. So when I am in Christ, I am becoming the best possible version of me. Wow. 
Okay, that's side one. Union with Christ means I am in Christ. Now, surrendering to Christ, becoming united with him, means side two, Christ is in me. And very simply, friends, Christ in me is what now gives me the power to make changes in my life. Remember my problem, your problem too, what is it? It's powerlessness. Remember God's offer? Supernatural power. Okay, and the question we're wrestling with is, how do you get this power in your life? The, the way you get it in, you surrender to Jesus Christ, and the all-powerful Christ comes to live inside by his Spirit. Now, now please understand, that doesn't mean that we, we then sort of switch to some sort, sort of a Jesus autopilot, okay? You know, just push the button now, and Jesus takes over, and we no longer have any responsibility for our restoration, right? No. Rankin Wilburn in that book, United with Christ, he, he said, having Christ in you, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, then I'll tell you what it does mean. He, he said, it doesn't mean that you operate like a motorboat, so you got all this power, and it's now up to you to steer it and work the throttle, and you're in control. It doesn't mean that. Now, it doesn't mean, he said, at the opposite extreme, that you're a raft, that you're sort of now, you know, let go and let God. You've heard that before. You're kind of drifting lazily downstream and just, you know, he, you're being carried along. No. He said what you are is a sailboat. Now, if you've ever sailed, you know that the sailboat depends on wind power. And in this analogy, Jesus is the wind power. He comes to live on the inside. However, it's up to you to catch the wind. So if you've surrendered to Christ... And you've got Jesus on the inside. How, how do you catch the wind? How do you stay connected? Well, you're doing it right now. Here you are in a church service worshiping God, a great thing to do once a week just to renew your commitment to following him and lifting him up in praise. And we're studying God's word together and you're rubbing elbows with other people who want to be on this restoration track becoming all that God has meant them to be you're in the right place and I would encourage you if you surrender to Christ and Christ has come to live on the inside the way you tap into his power is make sure you're hanging out with people like the ones you're surrounded with right now you know come back next week and the week after that and the week be with us through this restoration series learn what it means to walk in the power of Christ and what if you've never surrendered to Christ and so Christ isn't on the inside and the power, the power to change is not there? Well, I want to invite you right now as we draw things toward a close at our Easter service to surrender your life to Christ. I want you to make this the most memorable Easter of your life by making a decision you may never have made before. So I'm going to ask our campus pastors at our other three campuses to come on, on stage right now and close their services with a surrender prayer, just as I'm going to do here at Christ Community Church St. Charles. And then i got a few closing comments to make after that. But pray with me right now. Let's bow our heads together. If you've never surrendered to Christ, this is your opportunity to do so. It's a deliberate decision you've got to make. So you pray something like this. God, thank you for making me a beautiful masterpiece. Thank you for making me a person in your image. 
But God, I ask you to forgive me for defacing that masterpiece with bad behaviors and attitudes and words, misplaced priorities. I'm going to pause right here because sometimes when you're praying this surrender prayer, to get real, it helps to personalize it. So most of us have personal sins we gravitate to. For you, it might be, it might be anger or it might be alcohol or it might be sexual promiscuity or it might be a judgmental, self-righteous spirit. You know, so whatever it is, just say, God, I'm so sorry. I've been marring the masterpiece with my sinful behaviors. And now say, from your heart, say, God, my sin deserves death because I've pulled away from you, the giver of life. But I understand that Jesus died the death I deserve to die. Okay, in your prayer right now, you're you're turning the corner. You're beginning to focus no more on you, but on what Jesus has done for you. And so tell God, I want Jesus in my life. I want to surrender to him as Savior and King. I want to learn what it means to be in Christ and for Christ to be in me. Can you tell him that and mean it from your heart? Can you tell him, I I want to be on the path of a changed life? I want old things to be gone and new things to, to start sprouting up in my life? If you just pray that prayer with absolute sincerity then you've just surrendered your life to Christ and I want you to remember this one of the things we do at Christ Community Church before I say amen and we look up I'm going to ask you to do something tangible because it always helps when you make an important internal decision like the one you just made to do something external, something tangible that will remind you in a day or two yes, that's the decision I made So here's what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment. If you've surrendered your life to Christ this morning, I want you to stand to your feet for one second, just one second, and sit back down as a way of saying, I mean it. God, I mean it. I'm really surrendering to Jesus. So right now I'm going to ask you, all across our auditorium, up in the balcony, Out in the hub, if you're in overflow space, if you just surrendered your life to Christ, you prayed that prayer and you meant it, would you just stand up for one second and then sit back down? Just one second. Good. Good. Keep going. Maybe you're watching this online and you're sitting on a sofa at home. Stand up right where you are. Say, I'm surrendering to Christ and then sit back down. I'll give you just another few seconds. Again, wherever you're watching, wherever you're listening, you know if Christ is tugging on your heart. I see you guys. Yep, I see you. Yep, just quickly. One second on your feet. Nothing magical about standing up. It's your way of declaring, though, I'm surrendering to Christ. I want to live in Christ. I want Christ to live in me. Lord God, I want to pray for those who've just made that life-changing decision. Whether they feel it or not, the reality is Christ has just come to live on the inside. And Christ has become their representative. And so what's true of Jesus is now true of them. So I want to pray for those who stood. I want to pray for those who prayed that surrender prayer but just just couldn't get to their feet. 
that this, this would be the beginning of a new walk with you, the beginning of the restoration process, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.